Good morning. Good morning, everyone. We'd like to welcome you here on this beautiful, sunny Sunday morning as we come together as God's people. Please stand and join us as we begin our service by singing our praises to God.
Christ should be the head of all his purpose to fulfill. the God who saves. And we come today to praise you and to honor you and to glorify you. And we ask that you will speak into our hearts in this time of worship. We know that you are here and we know that you desire to work in us and through us and let this worship inspire us and bring glory to you. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Before you're seated, take a moment to share a word of greeting to those who are here in worship today. wonderful to see you as we come together on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. And uh, we uh, especially welcome those of you who may be guests here today. 
We're happy to have you as a part of this time of worship. There are a few things that I want to uh, want to make a few announcements. One is I want to introduce a couple of uh, new pastors to you. Uh, they have been a part of our community and our church for a few years, but uh, as of the first of the month have joined our pastoral staff. And uh, Mike Jordan and Kevin Austin, I'm asking them to stand. And I know Mike's family will be at 11 o'clock. Kevin's is here now. You guys can stand as well so people get to see you. And uh, we are so excited about having them as part of our staff. And uh, Mike will be preaching this morning, Kevin a little later in the summer. But we are excited about them being a part of uh, our leadership team here at the church. And uh, we know that uh, they bring many gifts and uh, abilities and the spirit of Christ as uh, they uh, lead, will lead us in uh, the years ahead. So we're happy to have them as part of our staff. Uh, just a reminder that next Sunday morning, we gather for worship at 8.30 and 11. And then note that beginning June 24th, we start Summer Sabbath and the worship schedule changes. So just please note that. And all, as always, there are a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin. And uh, we continue to pray for circumstances related to us here as well as around the world as uh, we pray for God's grace and mercy upon his people. I'd like to ask the ushers to come and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church.
It's always appropriate to approach God in prayer whenever, wherever. Sometimes kneeling is an appropriate uh, physical action as we come to God in prayer. And it, it can symbolize humility. And something, sometimes something about praying at a place like an altar can, um, can cause us to think differently about prayer. And maybe kneeling at the altar feels a little bit strange to you. It's more public. But prayer is something we do as community with our God as the church. And so if you'd like to use the altar as a place of prayer, it's open. I invite you to join me. Most holy God, at your name we bow in humble adoration. We lift our voices in praise because you are the almighty God, the creator of all that exists. And through your son, the giver of salvation. And through your Holy Spirit, the sustainer of each one of our lives. Father, we come today to worship you. We come today to declare that you are God, that you are our God. And we come today to declare how much we need you. Father, life gets so busy for us. And we go about our busy ways So many distractions, so many responsibilities, so many demands. And before we know it, you have been moved to the periphery of life. This morning, Father, we declare that we want you at the center. We declare our allegiance to you. We declare our life surrender to you. And we pray, Father, that you will draw us back to that place where you are focused and central in every part of our being. Father, today we come with all kinds of needs and burdens. Things about our lives, things about the lives of people we love, things about those we are acquainted with and know, things about this world. We pray that you will heal every person who is broken in body mind, spirit. We pray that you will bring comfort to every person who is grieving a loss in all the various ways in which it comes to us in this world. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with decisions, decisions about the future. We pray, Father, for every person who is wrestling with disappointment. Father, in every circumstance, Reveal yourself as a God of love and grace and mercy and truth. Lord, we pray for this world in which we live. For our brothers and sisters around the world, many of whom face great opposition and persecution for their faith. 
And we ask that you would sustain them and encourage them. And we pray that we would be inspired by their witness. Father, we pray for the places of the world where there is violence and war. We think especially of Syria. So many innocent people losing their lives in the battle for power. And there's other places of the world where the same things are happening. We pray for your peace. We pray for your people in these places to be a beacon of light and a witness. Father, we pray for your mercy upon this place. Let our worship be focused on you. Let it be all about you. And let our hearts be turned to you, filled with compassion, filled with your grace, filled with your truth. Father, thank you for meeting us here today. Thank you for drawing us into your presence. Let our worship continue to honor you and glorify you through the power of our risen Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word and remain standing for the song to follow? Our reading this morning will come from Luke chapter 7, verse 36, through chapter 8, verse 3, of which you can follow along in the Pew Bibles on page 1023, or look at the screen. Luke seven thirty-six through 8, 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who had lived a sinful life. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears 
and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to Jesus and his disciples out of their private means. This is the word of the Lord. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, to bear love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, that caused the Lord of life to lay aside his crown for my soul, to lay aside his crown for my soul.
Hey, hi, I'm on. Okay. <laughs> well, let me um, start by just saying um, what a real honor it is to be uh, here and to have been called into this position. When I uh, was a student at Houghton College, I had a professor who advised us in class, and this is something I remember nothing else from this class uh, except for this one thing he said in your life, I want to challenge you to choose where you live, not by the job you get offered, but by the church community you want to belong to. In your life, I want to challenge you to live, choose to live not by where you get a job that's offered to you, but by the church community uh, you want to belong to. And what he meant was that our lives shouldn't be dictated to us by the whims of some personnel committee but we should find a church where we are convinced that God is doing something in a good way and at the same time needs our gifts to do it even better. And then you should move there and let your career chips fall where they may. Now that is rather high-minded advice and it struck me as very revolutionary at age 18. At age 23, at age 27, it struck me frankly as a little naive and very undoable. But I have to say that it is one of the pieces of advice that has stuck with me through those years to the point that it was a primary piece of advice swirling through my mind when Jill and I made the decision to move here. When I considered leaving the church where I was a pastor, there were a number of things going on. One of them was a keen sense of feeling alone in ministry. And that's not something I blame on the congregation I pastored. It's mostly something I blame uh, on me. But I wanted to come to a place where I felt like my gifts could be welcomed and could be useful, but I didn't want to feel every ounce of weight that I felt then. Like if I didn't come through in the clutch, the whole thing was going to fall apart. And so when we saw the mathematics job posted on the Houghton College website, we didn't just do our research on the college, we did our research on you. We looked through the website. We saw pictures, we read your newsletter, and we definitely had this keen sense that, yes, this was a community that uh, we both wanted to be a part of. Here is a group of people striving to follow God together in a way I found compelling for this place and for this time, and I wanted to be a part of it. It might be an overstatement to say that we moved just to be part of this church, but that was a huge consideration for us. 
were honored to just be a part of this community. It was good to come to a place where I felt like I didn't have to come up with ideas, but I could follow a leader who was coming up with some pretty good ideas and a group of people from whom ideas were just flowing. That being said, I was a little nervous when one of the ideas that you all had was that I would take some sort of leadership role. And part of me wanted to say no, because it had been nice to to follow that, uh, to follow your call and to follow Wes's leadership and the leadership of the other staff. I didn't really imagine this happening, and I don't take lightly that call. Um, And you can trust that I will do my best always in it, but I'm nervous about it at the same time. So thank you for the call. And what were you thinking? (laughs) Calling. (laughs) Well, with that, with that, with that, let's turn our attention to the the passage uh, of the day, which James has already ably read. Thank you. In uh, In the passage, Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's home. And we read that there is a woman in the city who heard that he was there at the Pharisee's house. And so she came to see Jesus and she came weeping and she was bringing this alabaster jar of perfume, a precious jar full of precious ointment. And she knelt and she wept and she broke open the jar and her tears and the ointment mingled on his feet and she dried his feet with her hair. All in all, it was the scene of intense love, intense devotion, born out of this woman's profound sense that this man had somehow set her right with God in a way that she, I'm sure, couldn't fully explain aside from doing what she did. So it's a beautiful scene. It's a profound scene. But we also need to say this. We need to admit this. It's a weird scene, isn't it? It's a little, right. So if one of you did this today, I would be creeped out. Right, And we preachers sometimes look at this text and uh, in kind of in the preacher world we get in, we're like, it was so beautiful. It was so profound. How could the Pharisees not get it? And to that I say, who would get it? Right? Who could possibly get it? Why would they get it? Would you get it? Right? It was a weird thing that was happening. It was unusual. Here is a woman, a woman of ill repute, shall we say, mind you. And she breaks open this expensive perfume and pours it all over his feet and kisses him and dries with her hair. It's weird. And some of you think I'm making too much of this. And uh, if you think I'm making too much of this, come on up to the front. We'll take your shoes off. I'll pour perfume on your feet and I'll dry your feet with my hair. And we'll think, see if you think it still isn't weird. And keep in mind, I'm not even a woman of ill repute, right? <laughs> The host of the party says, well, if this... I'm going to trip on my shoelace. I'm just going to kick these off. I'm sorry. I, it's not a holy ground thing. I just... Anyway. Sorry. The host of the party says, well, if Jesus were really all he says he is, if he were really a prophet, if he were really given supernatural knowledge from God, he would have known who and what kind of a woman this is who is touching him. That she is... A sinner. Now, the Pharisees' response is interesting to me. When we have something that goes on in our lives, when we find ourselves in a weird moment, when we find ourselves in a crisis moment, when we find ourselves going through something difficult, we often say something like, I wish so-and-so were here. I wish mom were here. I wish dad were here. They'd know what to do. They'd know what to do. If this Pharisee is going to critique Jesus, you would presume he would critique Jesus along the same lines, right? If this guy is really a prophet, he'd know what to do. 
in the middle of this crisis. He would be doing something different. He would be saving this woman. He'd be preaching to this woman. I don't know what he'd be doing, but if he were a prophet, he'd know what to do. But that's not what the Pharisee says. Instead, the Pharisee says, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. Not he would know what to do. He would, not who he'd know who this woman is, but he would know what kind of woman she is. What kind of person she is. He would know, in other words, how to categorize her. He would know that she fits in a category called prostitute. And we all know that we act a certain way towards people in categories like that, don't we? We give them the cold shoulder. We ignore them. We preach at them. Sometimes we Christians sanctimoniously tolerate them or do mission trips to help them. But whatever we do, we don't allow them to get away without us communicating to them our displeasure for their chosen vocation. If this guy were a prophet, he would know she is of a category of which we do not approve. Now, the Pharisee's response to me points out a fundamental human reality. When we meet someone new, especially if we're in a weird moment, if we're in a crisis situation, as Jesus was, we tend to make quick, intuitive judgments about someone and then act accordingly. We try to quickly uh, figure out what slot that person fits in. We try to categorize that person quickly to determine whether they fit into a category we can trust or if they fit into a category into which we cannot trust. And if they fit in the category in which we trust, we listen to what they say, we allow them a certain access to our lives. But if they go in that other box, we don't trust them. We don't listen to what they have to say. We don't allow them access into our lives. The Pharisee's main critique of Jesus is that he puts her in the wrong box. He would know what kind of woman this is. And that she belongs in the not trustworthy category. But Jesus puts her over here. He allows her access. Now, as I say, I think this is a fundamental human reality. And to prove this point, I have only to mention one name, Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. What if I told you I listened to Rush Limbaugh and sometimes agree with him? Please note, I'm not telling you I listen to Rush Limbaugh and sometimes agree with him. But what if I did tell you that? Odds are you would have one of four responses. First, first response. It might not be surprising news to you. You might already think I listen to Rush Limbaugh. And so what you would say is, huh, no surprise here. I always liked Rush and I like you. No surprise. I'm not surprised you listen to Rush. Second option. You're still not surprised, but you feel quite the opposite, right? I'm not surprised you listen to Rush, Mike. I don't like Rush, and I don't like you, right? That's the other option. So you might be surprised. If you're, you might already expect to listen to Rush, and that might impact you one of two ways. The other way is you might be surprised that I listen to Rush. You might say, oh, I'm surprised Mike listens to Rush Limbaugh. I guess he's not so bad after all. I mean, in that last sermon he preached, he totally sounded like a Democrat. I was kind of putting him over here, but now I know he listens to Russia. He's okay. I'm listening to him differently. Or, of course, most painfully, you might be surprised and you say, oh, I'm surprised Mike listens to Rush. I always liked him. I don't know. Whenever I heard him preach before, he seemed to have good things to say, but now that I know he's a ditto head, I don't know. Uh, maybe I judged him wrong. 
Maybe he belongs in that other box. Maybe I need to be more careful about him in the future. Take him with a grain of salt. Now, I could have done the same little exercise with anybody. I could have done it with Keith Olbermann or Al Franken. The same thing would happen. My choice of who to listen to shapes your perspective of me. It either confirms a suspicion you already had or it makes me more or less trustworthy to you. If I tell you who I listen to, it invites you to put me in a box in your life. And the box, and people in one box you listen to, and the people in one box you don't listen to. That's why I don't tell you who I listen to, because I don't want you putting me in a box. This is a coping mechanism that we have in a world where we're so connected with so many people. Because we know so many more people than we used to know. Because we're on Facebook with millions of people at all times. We need a way of dealing with that reality. And so it's easy to just slot people, put them in boxes. And to be honest, it gives us a special little delightful feeling when we put somebody in that not trustworthy box. Because you know what? Everybody in that box, we're better than. It makes us feel especially good to put people there. So what's Jesus' response when the Pharisee says, if this guy were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is? Well, his his response is essentially to say, I know exactly what she has done. And I know exactly what sort of box you say she belongs in. The trouble is I don't see those boxes. All I see is what she's done for me and what you haven't done for me. I came in and she gave me perfume in her hair and you didn't even give me water and a towel. She's been kissing my feet and you didn't even greet me properly. She put perfume on my feet. You haven't even given me oil for my head. These things she's done wrong, which you say serve only to put her in a box, seem to have made her pretty grateful to meet someone who doesn't put her in a box. You don't think you've done anything wrong, I guess, Pharisee, or else you'd be a lot more grateful than you apparently are. Jesus doesn't see boxes. He sees people. And this is the thing about Jesus. He's unwilling to settle for boxes. He recognizes that the people in front of him are real, live, actual people. And not simply data to be analyzed, categorized, and either listened to or dismissed. He realizes that the woman, though she is in the not-to-be-trusted box, is actually profoundly, deeply ready for a real relationship with God because of the way she responds to him. And he also realizes that the Pharisee, though he is in a box that says trusted, is not at all ready for a relationship with God because he doesn't even seem to recognize anything that God has done for him. You might notice in the scripture that Jesus doesn't minimize the things that got them into those boxes in the first place. He confesses that woman has done a lot wrong. And he says to the Pharisee, you probably haven't done much wrong in your life. But he sees beyond what has happened before and he sees to what is happening now. And the potential for what might happen in the future. He sees each of the characters as a precious, complex being. One of the... uh, One of the reasons I was really, really, really happy to come on staff here in the end is that I feel like this church gets the reality that faith is relational. That the Christian faith is not simply a series of ideas which have to be believed, but ideas that have to take on flesh in the way that we live together with each other and the way that we as a body live out towards the world. 
That is the measure of who we are as a Christian, not simply ideas that we assent to in our minds. I think Jesus' response here gives us some insight into how we can strengthen that relational character even more. If the Christian life is indeed all about relationships, this passage, I think, gives us some insight into how to conduct relationships with each other. Three things. They're short. One, we have no business putting each other into boxes. We expend a lot of energy putting people into boxes. We expend a lot of energy evaluating each other to determine whether or not the next person we meet is trustworthy. Is he a Democrat? Is he a Republican? Is she pro-choice? Is she pro-life? Does she go in the traditionalist box? Does she go in the feminist box? Is he a member of the NRA? That's a dead giveaway. How does she feel about gay marriage? That's a dead giveaway. Now, please hear me. I am not saying your feelings on these questions are not important. These are profoundly important questions. I'm not at all saying, hey, we should just get along because all these issues don't matter, man. Not what I'm saying. If we get coffee together, I will argue with you up and down about these issues. Especially if I buy the coffee. If you buy the coffee, I might feel compelled to be nice. But if I buy the coffee, I will argue with you about each of these issues. And you might be surprised at how I feel about some of them. These questions are urgent, vital questions. They are the questions that face Christians in our time. We dare not have well-thought-out responses to these questions. But even though theology is very, very important, and it took 12 years of my life to study it, right? they don't determine who we are as people. The answers to these questions don't make us who we are. Think of all the times when Jesus saw past the labels that society applied to people to see people as complex, real beings. When he saw past the boxes, he saw lepers not just as lepers, but people, right? He saw the Samaritan woman not just as Samaritan or woman, but said, hey, there's an evangelist. Jesus doesn't know it yet. He saw Zacchaeus not just as tax collector or wicked, but there's a generous guy who hasn't found it out yet. And if we want to be like Jesus, we can't put people into boxes. We can't say conservative, liberal, traditionist, feminist, or any of the other suffocating boxes we put people in. Number two, if you want to let someone out of a box, accept a gift from them. It's interesting, isn't it, what Jesus does? You would think that Jesus would show the Pharisee how to treat this woman by bending over and saying, there, there, you don't have to wash my feet. What can I do for you? Doesn't that sound like Jesus? But it's not what she does. What Jesus does, he treats the woman as fully human by acknowledging that he has something to receive from her. Not only this, but we saw at the beginning of chapter 8, some of you were like, why did they tack on the beginning of chapter 8? But look at the women who Jesus traveled with who bankrolled him. These women, by the standards of our time, were oppressed people. And yet Jesus said, hey, you want to bankroll me? You want to pay for me while I go around and teach? Cool, great. Right? He didn't just say, how can I solve your problems? But he let them in and said, I have something to receive from you. And that's what makes us fully human to each other. If I can receive a gift from you, 
If I can allow you access to my heart and say, you know what, my relationship with you makes me a better person, so I need to learn from you. I need to receive from you. Only then are you really a person to me. Otherwise, you're just either an ally or an obstacle on the way to me getting what I want. And we have no business treating each other as obstacles. Three, we have to presume good faith in each other. It's easy and fun to believe that people who disagree with us are out to destroy us. If I find you conservative, though, I have no business saying to you, "Ah, typical conservative, people like this are ruining the Wesleyan church. If they had their way, they'd start up the Inquisition again. They'd set us all back 150 years. And if I find you liberal, I have no business saying to you, typical liberal, liberals are ruining our church. If they had their way, they'd tax us all 90%. They'd ordain anything that moves and they'd marry you to their dog if they had the chance. Some of you are listening. That's good. When we say things like that, what are we doing? We are intentionally caricaturing others so that we can feel better about ourselves. We're reducing the humanity of another person, making another person seem less like an actual person and more like a fool, so we can feel less foolish. And if I'm reading the Sermon on the Mount rightly, Jesus says that's murder. Right? You kill another person when you say they're a fool so you can feel better about yourself. If I act like that, then it's not liberals or conservatives who are ruining the church. It's me by running around and murdering people. Murdering people, no way to grow a church. Right? Please hear me. The issues ought to be debated with precision, with passion. They are important. But I'm saying it is even more important to treat each other as fully human and not stuff people in boxes. If we force them into boxes and thus not allow them to be fully human to us, we destroy the relationship that saves the church from being just another boring, stuffy, strident political action group. What makes us different from all those things is that we have a relationship with each other that goes beyond just a few ideals, but is rooted in a person who cared enough to have a relationship with us. And if we're going to have that relational fiber, we need to be real people to each other and not just boxes. And that means gratefully receiving the gifts that we have from each other. You know, both Rush and Keith Olbermann, frankly, and the rest of the media in our culture thrives on making us feel threatened. On making us feel like our way of life is under attack by godless liberals or backward homophobic idiots... We gravitate toward their messages because they reassure us that the other side is, after all, definitely stupid and probably corrupt, and we, of course, are not. And so, in a time like that, it's all hands on deck, no holds barred, because that other side will stop at nothing to defeat us, to destroy us righteous people and, and our way of life. And so we watch each other. 
We listen to what words people say and how they say them, the tone of voice, the smirk in the face that reveals to us which side they're really on. Words like social justice, words like gay lifestyle, words like biblical authority, words like sustainability, words like fundamentalist. We listen carefully for these words and how people say them so we know if we can trust them or not, so that we know if they are with us or against us. That may be a good way to win a culture war, but that is a wretched way to run a church. Dividing into camps, brandishing weapons, murdering each other by treating each other as fools. It's not the abundant life that God has called us to. And it's certainly not a church that's capable of extending this Jesus that we just talked about, his ministry into the world in any meaningful way. Well, that's the bad news. The good news is that change can start today. That it can begin before you leave this place. And it's not hard work. It demands no special intellectual capabilities. It can happen over food, which I love. I love food. Um, And so when we invite someone unexpected and different over for a meal, or when we say yes to such a request and begin to build a relationship with someone, if you serve a meal like that, it can be any meal, but it turns out to be a sacrament in the end because God's grace is released in a new way. Because a relationship that used to be toxic is starting to give life instead of being murderous. And you're going to look across that table at that person and you're going to see someone you profoundly disagree with in some way. But you're going to be building a relationship. You're going to be laying a foundation so that one day you can talk about the things you disagree about. Without going all Rush Limbaugh or Keith Olbermann on each other. It doesn't have to be a meal, of course. It can be a simple kindness, a surprise gift, a note sent just because, a pie given. Yes, I know I went back to food, but pie is on my mind. Uh, A courtesy extended. All these things build relationships. And slowly but surely, when we build relationships in these little ways, we become not simply liberals or conservatives, not simply Republicans and Democrats, but people. Precious, complex, confusing contradictory, and oh yes, beloved. Loved with an everlasting love by a God who invites us into that dance of love by saying, love each other like I love you. And when we do this, slowly but surely, we learn to look at people not like Pharisees for what kind of people they are. And we start finding ourselves looking at people like Jesus who receives a gift And says humbly and honestly, thank you. Thank you. I wouldn't be the same without you. By giving and receiving gifts, we're laying a foundation by which we all together can be a house for the spirit of the living God. Will you pray with me? God, like all preachers, I realize I call us to something impossible. Certainly by the standards uh, set down to us by the world. Which has told us who we can and can't be friends with. Who we can and can't trust. We pray God for a different spirit to pervade this place. And not just simply a sentimental spirit. Not just simply a syrupy spirit. But your Holy Spirit. Which recognizes the power of truth to transform lives. But also recognizes that truth always comes to us with skin on. First in your son, Jesus, and then by us as we extend his ministry into this place. 
We pray, God, that you would make that vision real among us today. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make... Sorry. You know, I write my sermons out, and then I forget the benediction. It's right there in the scripture. Hold on. Sorry. This is one of the things you'll have to deal with with me. Thank you. Does anyone else know this? Thank you. You knew this. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.